Okay, good morning. Thank you for uh, braving the elements and joining us this morning. I want to thank our sponsors, Dr. Zilan and Juliana Rosenblatt, who sponsored the Parsha class again for Rafua Shlema for Yisrael Mayor Ben Daphne Bruria. Should have a speedy and complete uh, Rafua Shlema. Also, uh, next week, please God, will be at APAC, so there will be no Parsha class. So please note, no Parsha class next week. We'll continue the week after. This week we have the privilege of reading and studying Parsha Tzav. Parsha Tzav. So we're going to do an overview of the whole Parsha, and then we'll come back to look at the opening words of the Parsha, and for their very um, inspiring message, not only for the time when there was a Mishkan and the offering of Karbonos, but all the way through until, until today. So Parsha Tzav deals specifically with the Karbonos, the sacrifices. We've given an introduction several times to the idea of the sacrifices. When a person offers a Karbon, an animal, it's not a barbaric act, it's not an antiquated, inaccessible, unrelatable act, but a person is offering the animal in them. Several times we've spoken about it. We're made up of two components simultaneously. We have an animal soul, the nefesh, and we have the godly soul, the neshama. And the animal soul represents our yetzahara, animal impulse, animal instinct, animal desire. And the godly soul represents discipline, the capacity to reign sovereign, to be in charge. And when we offer a carbon, we're taking the animal in us, and we're offering it, we're sacrificing it, we're telling God that we purge it so that we will exclusively be disciplined, elevated, holy souls, a neshama. So Parsha Sav goes through these different korbonos and spells them out. So the Parsha begins, Savas Arav is born of Lemur, Zos Torah Ola, begins with the korbon Ola. This is what we're going to come back and study specifically uh, together. But the korbon Ola is offered exclusively to Hashem. It's all on the fire through the night. It's consumed, it's burned, until it produces a pile of ash. And so the Parsha continues, Eshem is back to Kadbo, and the Kohen changes his clothing. Veheri Mesadeshen. And he removes the ash. And we've studied this a few weeks ago as well. The notion of the Trumas Adeshen, the removal of the ash. We spoke about the peculiarity of the Kohen Gadol's wearing priestly garments to take the garbage out. And he doesn't take the garbage directly out, puts the garbage next to his back and only then takes it out. And we shared the insight of Rav Hirsch that before we offer today's sacrifice, we take a moment to respect and reflect and honor yesterday's sacrifice. That the sacrifices that are made today are predicated, they're built on the sacrifices of yesterday. The coin changes his clothing and he, and he continues. The Korban Ola, here in this context, it tells us, Vo'esham is bech tukat bo. So the, the, the Korban Ola, the first sacrifice, which is brought, by the way, for Machshavos, a person who has thoughts, Hirhure Avera, a person who fantasizes about sin, which in some way the Torah holds us even more accountable than sin itself. Person who violates a mistake, eats something, says something, looks at something, goes somewhere, they're overcome by temptation in that moment. That doesn't mean that we don't have free will and we shouldn't have been more disciplined, but it means in that moment, the person submitted, they succumbed to their temptation. But a person who has hirhure avera, the person who meditates, who fantasizes, who allows themselves to lose themselves in the, in the thought of avera, they've made the conscious choice to fantasize, to think, and therefore in some ways it's even stricter, in some ways it's even worse, and therefore the Korban Ola compensates for those, for those machshavos. And as well, we studied it previously, I think last year we talked about it, that the Korban Ola compensates for arrogance, for hubris. When a person thinks that they're all that, the Korban Ola, it has to be utterly consumed. 
As we discussed, there are two character traits, both the Rambam and the Ramban say, when one has to be extreme on. Normally we go the middle of the road, normally the Shvil Azav, the golden mean, normally the word Midos means measure, all character traits belong in the mix in some measure, but the two character traits, but the Ramban and the Rambam agree, don't belong in any measure in the repertoire of our character, is or are uh, anger and humility. A person has to be extreme to be patient, not to get angry. And a person has to be exceedingly humble. Arrogance is self-destructive. Anger sabotages our own happiness and our own success. So there's no moderation in these two character traits. People in the pursuit of honor and glory and making a name sacrifice, sabotage their entire lives. And people who lose their cool and get angry destroy their relationships and business opportunities. These character traits don't belong even in moderation. A person has to be extreme in not acting in either of those ways. So that's the carbon ola. It's burnt on the fire the entire night. It's entirely consumed to remind us that we have to entirely purge those character traits. We don't maintain them and we don't, um, we don't hold them even in moderation. We have to get rid of them altogether. Now you might notice in the second pasuk, the carbonola stays on the flame of the altar all night until the morning, and the fire remains lit on it all the time. The fire can never be allowed to go out. What is the significance of the symbolism of the fire can never be allowed? The fire can never be allowed to go out. So the Chassidus Shvarim all have the same. Uh, Chassid Shavort on the Eisham Mizbeach Tukad Bo. The pastor could have said the Eisham Mizbeach Tukad. The fire of the Mizbeach should be lit. The fire on the top of the altar needs to remain lit. In fact, it was one of the miracles of the temple that even though the Mizbeach was outside, there was no roof or covering over it. And there were days like today here in South Florida where the rain is pouring down. Miraculously, the fire was never extinguished. The fire remained lit consistently, constantly, all, all the time. It remained, it remained lit. But why is, you'll notice, the mem in the word mokdam, on page 568, the article of Sor you'll notice the mem of the word mokdam is a mem zi'ira. It's a small mem. Last week we spoke about the aleph zi'ira, of vayikra, the small aleph. This is a small mem. It's not that the scribe ran out of room, so he crammed in the mem. So it's smaller than the other letters. We have a mesorah. This is part of our... Halacha l'moshem Sinai is part of our Torah Shabbat Peh, is the tradition of how a Sefer Torah is written and how the letters appear. So this letter is intentionally by design small. Why is the mem small? And why does the word why is the word bo Eisham mizbeach tukad bo? The fire of the mizbeach remains lit bo on it. What does the word bo add? It's extraneous. And what is the word bo? It's a pronoun. To whom is it referring? Is it the altar? So this is where it's quoted in many, many names. The Chidush Rim said, Eisham Ezbech Tukad Bo, the Kavana means, not the altar, the Kohen. The Kohen who's standing offering the Karbonos, Eisham Ezbech Tukad, the fire of the Ezbech has to remain lit, Bo, in him. It can't grow stale, it can't grow old, it should never become boring, rote, routine, it has to be fresh. Eisham Tukad Bo, it has to remain lit in him. The Imrechaim. You know I was going to quote an Imrechaim. So the Vishnitzer says on this Pasuk, quoting from the Kajnitzer Magid, the Pasuk elsewhere says, Ki azid isha re'eu armo. 
if a person's friend rises against him to kill him, ba'arma to sneak up upon him. And says the Koshnitzer Magad, Zeh Yetzer, Harotz Alahachti Yesa Adam Bemachshava Ve'armumis. The Yetzahara, our alter ego, our id, whatever psychological language or label you want to give it. The Yetzahara is not some little devil with a pitchfork who sits on one shoulder and the little angel on the other shoulder. That's our immature understanding of the Yetzahara. Our more sophisticated appreciation of the Yetzahara means, you know, the voice that says, eat the potato, eat the potato chips. Eat the chocolate cake. You deserve it. You skipped dinner seven weeks ago. You catch up now. Oh, it's Tainas Esther. Oh, it's almost Tainas Esther. You're going to fast. So have a little extra dessert. Tainas Esther, you're not going to eat anyway. And besides, Purim, you're going to let go. So you're going to let go. You might as well let go now. A week before Purim. So that vo- that's the Yitzhahara. That's the Yitzhahara. It's not a little devil on your, on your shoulder. It's the voice inside you. It's that, that alter ego. So how does that alter ego function? It works hard. To come up with that creativity, to come up to persuade you with those arguments, why it's okay and why it's justified and why it's not so bad and you're still better than the next person and all the complicated calculations that has to maintain. And Bar Mumias, it sneaks up on you. And we have a tradition from the Arizal. The Imre Chaim quotes, the Vishnitzer, Isa Mehari HaKadosh, Skulul Zelomar HaPasuk, Eish Tamid Tukadam Mizbeach Lo That when a person feels the Yitzhahara sneaking up on them, when they feel that they're not living their best self. They're not eating right, exercising right, they're not davening with kavana, they're not careful with lashanara, they're not patient or slow to anger. When a person feels they're not living their best life, that the Yitzhahara continuously is sabotaging them. At the end of every day they say, this wasn't my best day. Tomorrow's going to be a better day. So the Arizal had a skula. In order to make tomorrow a better day, you recite the Pasuk. Eish tamid a fire should continuously lip, be lit on the Mizbeach. Lo Sechbeach should never be extinguished. V'zeu me'im Mizbechi. Ayyidei HaPasuk, Eish tamid tukara al Mizbeach. Mizet tikachenu lamus lavata la'yitzahara. Adkan. So the Arizal's tradition was, how do you slaughter the Yitzahara? By keeping the fire lit on the Mizbeach the whole time. How do you consume the Yitzahara? How do you obliterate, how do you destroy the Yitzahara? By keeping the fire lit all the time. That word tamid, tamid al mizbeach, that it should be continuously lit, that word tamid, consistent or constant, is a reminder it should elicit the pasuk, shivisi Hashem the negdi samid, that Hashem is before me, samid always. When a person has a, has a practice as mindfulness, when a person is living in a mindful way, when a person is conscious and conscientious all the time, I'm never alone. Hashem is in the room with me. Whatever I'm about to watch, he's watching with me. Whatever I'm about to say, he's overhearing. Whatever I'm about to do, he's going to see and record. Not from the perspective of punishment. He's going to get me, lightning's going to strike, this is going to be terrible. If I want to get nachas for my children and I want to not lose my money in the stock market, I have to behave because he's here, he's watching, big brother's watching. From the perspective of there's someone I love and admire and they're right next to me and I don't want to disappoint them. If I were to watch that or say that or listen to this or go there or act in that way, I would terribly disappoint somebody that I admire, someone I love, someone I'm in awe of. So shivisi Hashem lenegdi samid. person has to live with a sense that Hashem is always with me. The Sharetzi on the Shulchan Aruch writes, some had the tradition, we mentioned this in Siddur Snippets a few weeks ago, to write the word shivisi Hashem lenegdi samid on a piece of paper and to put it in their Siddur. 
That when you begin davening, and maybe it sits on the shtender, it sits on the table, it sits on the talus bag, it sits wherever you're davening, that when your mind wanders and you forget what you're saying and to whom you're saying it, you see the little petek, you see the little note, and you remember. Tamid. Shavisi Hashem Lenegdi Tamid. You have to always remember that Hashem is with you. And I like to say, it's like other relationships in life. I don't have to be reminded I'm married. It's Tamid. From the moment I stood under the chuppah, I remember. It doesn't matter where you go or who you meet or what opportunities you have or what business trip you're on. You don't, you're not tempted to do a sin and they, oh, I'm sorry, I totally forgot. I'm married. I can't do that. You can't do that. You can't do that. A person knows all the time. You know, a parent, a parent, particularly of a young child, but I would argue parents of children of all ages. Now that I'm in the in-law club, I have a married child who lives far away. So you're no less worried about them. And what it means to be a parent means that you're going about your normal day. And those who have an empty nest mean that it's not on a daily basis that you're changing a diaper or doing homework or giving a bath or putting to bed or giving uh, antibiotic to a sick child. It's not every day that you're doing that. But even if all of your children are grown up and have graduated your home and they're married and living elsewhere, your identity as their parent and your care and concern, it's forever in the background of your mind. Forever. Where are they? What's going on? How are they doing? Why haven't they called? I need to call them. Why haven't they returned my call to them? Whatever is going on in your mind. So whether it's marriage, whether it's parenthood, these identities are, are ones that they not, may not be actively at the forefront of our mind all the time, but they represent the background of our mind all the time. And that's what the Sharetzion was quoting this tradition. That's the tradition that we have. Shivisi Hashem Lenegdi Samid. That a person should live life and say, oh, it's not that I was religious in shul, but by the time I got to work, I forgot I'm supposed to be religious. I was at the gym, I was at the supermarket, I was having coffee with a friend, and I had some really juicy, delicious lush and hard to share. Or I really wanted to watch that thing, or I really wanted to cut that corner, or I really wanted to, to pay in cash and, and, and save on taxes, I really wanted to do it and cut corners. He's with me all the time. I never, ever forget that status as being an Eved Hashem. Whether my children are with me or not, I know I'm a parent. If my spouse is with me or not, I remember I'm married. And whether I'm in shul with a sitter or not, I remember Shivisi Hashem, the Negdi Samid. So how do you combat the Sahara By invoking that Tamid. When we invoke that mindfulness, that presence, that conscientiousness, that Hashem is always with me. And this was the tradition of the Arizal. In other words, understand the Sahara works. The Imre Chaim's interpretation of the Ari is exactly how it works in marriage. Right? So a person who's tempted, a person who has an opportunity, a person who's being, who's being uh, solicited by somebody else, so bar mumis, they're, they're coming on to them and a person might, might give in to a Yetzirah. But if they remember, Tamid, I'm married all the time, it's not even a starter, there's nothing to talk about. This is a permanent part of who I am, it's not debatable, it's not negotiable, then they won't be vulnerable to that influence of the Yetzirah. So just as it's true in the context of marriage, if Shivisi Hashem, if I'm married to Hashem, and I have a certain fidelity and loyalty to Hashem and to His expectations of me, then even when the Yetzirah is working, Bar Mumis, Bar Mumis, B'machshavet, trying to, to make me compromise, I remember Tamid. So how do I do that? That's the point. Is, Eish Alam Izbeach, when the fire is burning inside me all the time. When I'm on fire. I'm on fire, I'm going to shiurim, I'm learning, I'm davening, I'm growing, I'm volunteering, I'm giving, I'm doing. When I live with a sense of fire, when I'm on fire, so there's no room for the Yetzirah to come in. If the fire goes out, if it's extinguished, if the flame is lowered, then 
then I'm vulnerable. Then I'm vulnerable. How do we defeat the Yetzahara and how do we sanctify our thoughts? By keeping that fire burning all the time. So it's a chassid shavor. But Eisham is beach tukad bow, the bow on it. The it is not the altar, it's not the mizbeach. The it, said the Chedush Arim, is. The Ayid, a Jew, that we should always be on fire. We have to maintain and we have to preserve that fire inside us. To always be on fire. This is now, it's Erev Purim. We're in between Parsha Zachar and Purim. And this was exactly the mission and the strategy of Amalek. The strategy and the mission of Amalek was to put out the fire. Klai Yisrael walked away from our Sinai. And ain't fire gedola mizu. Nobody was ever more on fire. There was never a greater shear or musr shmuz or kumzitz or ne'ilah than, than Harsinai combined. It was the most magnificent, elevating moment. It was the moment, the greatest moment, moment of revelation in history. And people walked away on fire. On fire. I'll never forget walking home from ne'ilah many years ago with one of, one of our daughters, who at the time was not particularly religiously motivated. She wasn't a bad child, but she wasn't particularly religiously on fire or motivated. But ne'ilah, the experience of ne'ilah, she said, you know, I'm not in such a rush to eat. I don't think I ever need to eat again. I can't imagine not feeling so inspired, amazing again. Okay, by the time the bagel, the cream cheese was smeared on the bagel, it was already gone. But that's the nature of, of the fire. But walking home, I was like, wow, that ne'ilah was unbelievable. Time didn't matter. And, and a growling stomach didn't matter. But being lost in song and nigunim and part of a tzibur, hundreds of people and the walls reverberating with sound, we were on fire. So we walked away from our scene that we were on fire. And Asher Karcha Baderach, Amalek came up and Rashi says, Karcha Milashon Kor, they took cold water and they put out our fire. That's what the Amalek represents and stands for. The enemy of Amalek are those when we are Tukad Bo. We're fighting to preserve the fire inside us. We're listening to Shiurim and we're reading the kind of books and we're surrounding ourselves with the right people and we're going to Shul and we're trying to stay on fire because we want our fire to spread. This is the only kind of fire you want it to spread. You want others to catch on fire. The beauty of fire, that's why Neshama is likened to a candle because a fire can light something else without diminishing itself. The whole notion that a neshama is like Yiner, Hashem nishmas adam, a human being is likened to a candle. You can inspire someone else without, if I give you some of my money, I have less. If I give you some of my food, I have less. Every other resource that I share, if I share it with you, I have less for me. But if I'm on fire and I light you on fire, I'm still on fire. I haven't diminished, my flame hasn't gone down whatsoever. And I can light fire after fire after fire after fire. When we light a yurt, I can't know what we're saying to the person who's lost is, you lit my fire. You ignited my fire. You, you lit my flame. I was an empty, dry, cold wick. And you lit my flame. I wouldn't be here without you. So the flame represents the person who's no longer here, but it also represents that they as a flame lit us on fire. So Amalek comes along, and they just they poured cold water. They doused our flame. They extinguished our fire. And that's the Amalek inside all of us. This is the Vor. I know we're, this is for Parsha Zachar next year. But we say in Parsha Zachar, on, on Shabbat Zachar, we say a total stira, an absolute contradiction. On the one hand, we say, Zachar, we have to remember. And then we say, Machotim, you have to erase. So the fastest way to erase is to stop remembering. You know? 
the fact that we keep reminding ourselves, and we have a mitzvah, the only biblical commandment to remember, Parsha Zahar. So if you really are so interested in erasing someone's memory, stop saying their name. If you keep invoking their name, is the greatest way to keep their memory alive. So which is it? Are we trying to remember Amalek or are we trying to erase Amalek? Because it's a very counterproductive way to erase by gathering everyone together and remembering. So what's the answer? Many, many answers. The most famous answer is, is it's both. It's both. What we are remembering is the Amalek inside us. Amalek is not just a genetic nation. It's not a people. We don't have Amalek anymore. Rabbi Salavechik famously said that those who want to exterminate those who want to destroy the Jewish people, Amalek was never a genetic people. Amalek was an attitude towards life. And Hitler was Amalek. Others, Hamas, Hezbollah, perhaps certain members of Congress. Amalek can be somebody, I'm not saying that in a joking way, somebody who wants to exterminate and eliminate a people and who bears anti-Semitic views is, is carrying on the spiritual legacy as a spiritual heir of Amalek. So Amalek is not necessarily a genetic people, it's a way of thinking, it's a way of life. But, but, the main reason we're invoking and remembering Amalek and the story of Purim is to remember that Amalek is not only the external enemy, it's the Amalek inside us. That voice of putting out the fire, you don't think it exists in us? Anytime we're tempted to be caught on fire, we stop ourselves and say, it's not going to last, it never lasts, why bother? Why bother taking on this new commitment? Why bother starting to say tilim or going to the shir or, or elevating our observance and our level of practice? Why bother? It's not going to last and it's not really real. And absolutely, anyway, I know people who say tilim and they speak Lashonara and they're terrible people and they cheat in business. So why bother? We have that Amalek voice in us that tries to pour cold water on the fire in us. So what does Zahor remember? Remember that there's an Amalek in us. And now erase it, erase that voice inside you. It's not a contradiction, they're both true. Remember means be mindful that, there's, that we're vulnerable to the Amalek inside us that's trying to minimize and diminish and dismiss and undermine and be sarcastic and cynical about everything. Erase it. Remember it's there and now go erase it and allow yourself to be lit, to be lit on fire. Esham is be'ach tukad, bo. So why is the mem a small mem? Remember I said we're going to do the overview of the Parsha, then we're going to come back to the beginning. So we're, we're doing our overview. So why is the Mem a small Mem? So the Kotzke Rebbe, of Menachem Mendel of Kotzk, says, this is a small Mem, but if you look in the word, Tamim Tia Mashem Alokecha, that word Tamim is not a small Mem, it's a big Mem. It's a Mem Rabasi. It's a full, robust, big Mem. So why is the Mem of Tamim Tia Mashem Alokecha big, and the Mem of Mogda is small? So said the Kotzke Rebbe, it's there to teach us that when it comes to being Tamim, to be simple, to be pure, to be honest, to have integrity, to be a mensch, to be Ehrlich, that's a big Mem. That the world should see. But the Mem of that you're on fire, that's private. That's with humility. You're not on fire because you're impressing anyone. You're not on fire so you're superior to anyone. You're not on fire so you can sit in judgment of anyone. Being on fire is a private internal experience. Ribbono Shalom, I'm on fire in my passionate, romantic love affair with you. I can't get enough of you, Hashem. I can't wait to daven and talk to you. I can't wait to sit and listen to you talking to me. I can't wait to learn more of your Torah. I can't wait to practice more of your blueprint for life. But all of that, that's private. We don't throw that in anyone's face. We don't use it to judge others. We don't use it to feel superior or holier than thou. It's a small man. 
being on fire is something that's private, it's internal. The mem of tamim tia, but the fact that we are honest and have integrity and we're erelich and we're whole and we're complete, that mem, that's a big mem. Let everyone see how honest we are, how righteous and religious we are, that's for me privately. The world doesn't need to see that, says the Katsuka Rebbe. That part is something which is, which is very private. A very, very beautiful insight by the Katsuka Rebbe. Okay, going weiter in the, in the Parsha. That's all about being on, on fire. Tukad Bo. Being on fire. Okay, then we have the three fires that were in the, uh, in the uh, Mishkan, in the base of Mikdash. And then we get those Torahs HaMincha, the Korban Mincha. Korban Mincha was actually considered to be the holiest Korban. In last week's parasha, Rashi says the word nefesh only appears when a nefesh brings a mincha. Why is nefesh connected to mincha? So Rashi there says because who brought a korban mincha? The poor person, the person who couldn't afford an animal. An animal, if you think a piece of an animal, like a rib steak is expensive, imagine what the whole animal costs. So when you had to bring a korban, you had to take a loan. When you had to bring a korban, you took a mortgage. It was expensive. The person who couldn't afford it brought a mincha, which is a flower offering. So flour, what's flour? Flour is among the cheapest, among the cheapest uh, products there are. So the poor person brought the korban. So Kodesh Baruch was more impressed, nefesh. Hashem was more impressed, it's more beloved. When a rich person even brings an animal, it doesn't represent self-sacrifice. But when the poor person even has to give mincha, then that's something which comes. It's mesirus nefesh. It comes with a tremendous amount of effort. The other pshat that's brought is, the word mincha means, what does the word mincha mean? It means a gift. It means a gift. A mincha is a gift. When a nefesh, when we give our soul to Hashem, it's the greatest gift we can give Hashem. And the greatest gift that we feel we've received is the fact that we have a soul in our body, that we're animated and that we're alive and that we're interacting with the world. The Gemara says that mincha, of all the three tefillos, mincha is the most beloved and the most accepted to Hashem. Because Shachar is the beginning of the day. We've got countless minyanim at BRS. I think we're up to seven minyanim every morning. So you figure out which one works for you before you start your day. You get it in before you go to work. Not that hard. Marav, we're up to three Maravs a night at Poker Tone Synagogue. I'm sorry, but the Svartim four. Four Maravs a night at BRS. So you'll sneak in your Marav the end of your day. And if you didn't get the first one, you get the 8.30, you didn't get that, you get the 9.45, you didn't get... You'll get in your Marav. But Mincha... Just ask my wife, Mincha is never, ever at a convenient time. <laughs> ever. So when the clock changes and she says, Ugh, Mincha is now at the worst time. I say, but yesterday you say Mincha was at the worst time before the clock changed. How could this be the worst time? I don't know. So Mincha is always at the worst time. Mincha is never at a good time. It's bath time, it's dinner time, it's in the middle of work, and you're right in the middle of negotiating a big deal. Punk, the sun's about to go down. If you're in New York, it's 3 o'clock in the afternoon, it's about to be Shkia, and you're in the middle of work, and you got to have Mincha. You're a doctor, you're seeing patients, you're doing surgery, and you got to have mincha. So the fact that we interrupt our day and find a way to connect with Hashem at the most inconvenient time, that's a mincha. It's the greatest matana, it's the greatest gift, it's the most selfless act that we give Hashem. When we do the things that are convenient for us and conform with our schedule, it's nice, it's good, it's impressive, but it's not as impressive as when we do what we're willing to do when it's inconvenient. When I spoke at our Zion Adar dinner last week, and I say it every year at the Zion Adar dinner, when, I, when we honor and recognize the members of the Hebra Kadisha, doing a ta'ara never comes at a convenient time. You never get a phone call and say, you know, it's perfect, I left tonight open two hours to go to a funeral home and sit with a cadaver and bathe and prepare it. Never. It never comes at a convenient time, ever. That's part of the chesed shel emes. 
other chasadimar, no problem. In the three weeks on Tuesday at 9 a.m., I can deliver Tom Cheshabbos or set up for the wedding or pack the food for Mishloch Manos. I've scheduled it. But a tahara, chavra kadisha work, is never at a, by definition, it's never at a convenient time. Not for the member of the chavra kadisha, nor for their spouse or children who they're leaving behind. And therefore, they deserve the greatest honor. That's why it's called the chesed shel emes. So mincha is a mincha. The greatest expression of our gift to HaKadosh Baruch Hu is not the beginning of our day when we have a whole day ahead of us and we, we want to daven shachar. Hashem, I need your help. Let's go through my day and I need your help with this, I need your help with that, I need your help with the other thing. Nor is it marav. It's the end of my day. Rebbe Shalom, thank you. What a great day. I want to thank you for this and thank you for that. That could have been a little different. Maybe tomorrow we could do better with it. But marav, the end of the day, mincha is inconvenient. That's why it's called a gift. We have the korban mincha. Then we have, then we have the korban chatas, page 572. The korban chatas. Korban chatas is if a person does a avera b'shogeg, does something by accident, they bring a korban chatas, they bring a sin offering. And then the Torah interjects here the laws of kashering. All of a sudden, what happens if you, um, the korban wasn't brought properly, there was a defect, a problem with the korban, and then it remains too long in the, in the vessels, and it absorbs the negative taste. Tam, those learning the daf, appreciate. Tam ke'ikr, the fact that the taste remains in the vessel, and how do you purge it, and how do you cleanse it. But Soloveitchik points out that the Gemara records, we always read Sav before Pesach. This is a lip, leap year, so we're off a month. Baruch Hashem. It's not even yet Purim. We're off a month. But Tzav is normally associated with, we have Bamidbar before Shavuos and Tzav before Pesach. And the Gemara records a tradition, which part shall we read when, when? And part of the reason the Rav pointed out is because here you have the laws of kashering. So even now, even though it's not yet Purim, it's convenient for us to start thinking about the laws of kashering. And then we have the Korban Asham. What's a Korban Asham brought for? It's a guilt offering when you are not sure, when you're Basafik. You're not entirely sure if you did the wrong thing or not. You bring a carbon asham. So listen to this great chassid shavor. Zos asham kodesh kadashim hu. The laws of the guilt offering. It's kodesh kadashim. It's the most holy. Said the koshnetzer rebbe. The koshnetzer magid. Zos asham kodesh kadashim hu. Zeu amakar shakola ashama im adam choshiv balibo kodesh kadashim hu. You know what the source of all guilt is. You know what the problem. What leads you to make all the mistakes you make. Zos Torah Sa'asham. What's the Torah that brings an Asham? What is the driver that's leading you to making mistakes? Kodesh HaKadashim Hu. When you think you're Kodesh HaKadashim. When you think you're God's gift. Literally, you're the, you think you're the Holy of Holies. You think you're all that. You think the world revolves around you. When you think you're above the law. When you start to live life with an attitude and mentality of Kodesh HaKadashim Hu. You think you're all that? Zeu Torah Sa'asham. That's the beginning of the end for you. You think you're above the law, you think the law doesn't apply to you, you think the world has to revolve around you, that's the beginning of the end. Zos Torah Sa'asham, that is the source of, of sin offering. Then we have miscellaneous gifts that go to the Kohen, different parts. Of, each of these karbonas had different rules. Last year, two years ago, we went through, no, maybe four or five years ago, we went through the Shlomim. We did a beautiful piece by the Nesiv Shom, the Shlomim Rebbe, on the Shlomim. The Shlomim is considered among the holiest karbonos. The Shlomim is the karbon that brings peace between the Jewish people, the Kohanim, the Mizbeach, and Hashem. How does it bring peace? What does that even mean? So all the other karbonos are divided differently. The karbon ola is entirely consumed. Hashem is happy. We'll see in a moment. The Kohanim are not so happy. And the Yisrael, who have to spend all the money, is not so happy. The Chatas, parts go here. Part, the Shlomim, the one who bought the, the animal, gets to eat most of the meat. The karbon Shlomim go to the Bailam. Parts are gifts to the, co- to, the, to the Kohen. 
parts are consumed on the altar, but the majority, and this is the exception, the majority goes to the owner, the one on whose behalf the carbon was offered. And therefore it brings shalom to everybody, and there's a whole, what does that mean, and the, the source of the shalom, and what the shalom is all about. Again, we've discussed it several years ago, you could look there. So here we have the shalom. Pigul, if a person has the wrong thought, again, those learning the daf, know more about pigul than they ever thought they'd know, that if a person had the wrong thought, what are the wrong thoughts that you could have which would disqualify the carbon while you're bringing it? It's a very important, powerful message. The Kohen's going through all the entirely right motions. Externally, everything he's doing is right and to a T. Do I care when the pharmacist is mixing my medicine what he's thinking about? What do I care? Take this powder and this water or take these pills and count them out and put it in the bottle. At the end of the day, if I got my bottle, it's got the right pills, it's got the right powder. What do I care if he's thinking about the stock market, if he's thinking about his in-laws, if he's thinking about Pesach, if he's thinking about... What do I care? All good, wonderful thoughts. What do I care? What do I care what he's thinking about? It's the end result that I care about. Pigul is a very powerful message to us again about mindfulness and mindfulness and consciousness. And Judaism is about machshava. It's not just what we do, our external actions. It's what we're thinking. The Kohen does everything correct externally, but he's having the wrong thought. That wrong thought invalidates and disqualifies the carbon because being mindful, being present, having the right thoughts is entirely, is entirely about what the carbonos are about. You can't eat the carbonos in a state of contamination. The uh, different chelav uh, and dam, how they're offered, where they're offered. You can't eat blood. It's currently part of the daf. You can't eat blood um, anywhere, it's not just the law of the Korban and the Beis HaMikdash, but you're not allowed to eat uh, blood, not that you're tempted to. It's a very severe punishment, because Dam Nefesh, the blood represents the life force. It is, uh, it is life itself. Then the uh, Parsha goes through the different uh, parts of the animal, and then we get to the end of the Parsha, which is the consecration of the Kohanim which is for seven days they prepared. Moshe Rabbeinu wore the priestly garments and he went through a dry run of how, the Mish- of how the Mishkan was going to function and they needed to be anointed and they needed to be brought in and only then was it ready for opening day at the, uh, at the Mishkan. And the very end of the parsha, the very end of the parsha. You can't leave the entrance of the Almoid for seven days until the day of the completion of your investiture days. Right? So they weren't allowed to leave from the entrance of the Almoid until for the seven days, until the end of the investiture, until the end of the of the inauguration. This was the rule. The um, Rabbeinu Bachi points out it doesn't mean literally they remain at the Almoid uninterrupted for seven days. A person has to eat, go to the bathroom, has other needs. But it means that they have to remain as long as there are carbonos being done. During the hours that carbonos were being done, they had to remain there at that time. Why? Rabbi Salavitchik wonders why. So he writes the following. Proper preparation is a necessary condition for any encounter with holiness. For example, in the prelude to receiving the Torah, Moshe warned the nation, be ready for three days. Don't go near a woman. Similarly, Aaron had to submit to a seven-day preparation period prior to the dedication of the Mishkan. And every Kohen Gadol subsequently went through a similar sequester prior to Yom Kippur. All involved an encounter with holiness. Anytime there's an encounter with holiness, it demands what? Preparation. The prohibition of muksa is centered on the need for preparation. Among the prohibitions of muksa is food that was not prepared prior to Shabbos. One does not merit nor is one worthy of celebrating Shabbos unless one prepares for it. The Rambam writes, it's a mitzvah to wash one's face, hands, and feet in hot water of Shabbos due to the honor of Shabbos. One wraps himself in a talus, sits with his head covered, anxiously awaiting the reception of Shabbos as if he were going to greet a king. 
The mitzvah of Sirius Omer involves preparation for receiving the Torah. One similarly counts the years before Shemitah and Yovel's preparation. Holiness does not arrive suddenly. It comes only by the invitation inherent in the act of preparation. Ein Kedusha, Belihachana. There can be no holiness without preparation. We don't stumble upon holiness. It's once a book stumbling upon happiness. Maybe you stumble on happiness, but you don't stumble on holiness. Holiness comes only with preparation, with effort, with getting ready. Ein Kedusha Belihachana. person who prepares for Shabbos has what to eat on Shabbos. But you don't have anything to eat on Shabbos if you haven't prepared. So all these examples, including this end of the parsha and the, the notion that the seven-day preparation is in order to encounter holiness, how do you keep the fire lit? Preparation. Preparation. So it occurs to me that just like the Kohen Gadol had to be sequestered for seven days prior to Yom Kippur, before he could walk into Yom Kippur, he had to purify himself, he had to be prepared. You couldn't have the elevating holy experience, the transformative experience of a Yom Kippur, if you didn't prepare in advance. Well, we have a holiday, it's coming up tomorrow night, and Yom Kippur pales in comparison to it. It is only Yom HaKippurim, but really, Purim is the great. I gave a talk at Century Village last week about Purim and Yom Kippurim, two sides of the same coin, Rafutner's Pachad Yitzvah, several pieces in Rafutner, based on the Gra, and the two sides of the same coin. What does that mean? That Yom Kippur pales in comparison to Purim. Purim is a rabbinic holiday. Yom Kippur is a biblical holiday. Yom Kippur, I, I'm angelic. I'm fasting. I need no worldly pleasures. I'm con- entirely immersed in a, in a holy uh, environment. I'm davening the whole day. And Purim, I'm running around dressed up like a weirdo, drinking, <laughs> making l'chaims, delivering and receiving mishloch manos. And that's a holier day than my kittel and my talus and my white shoes and Yom Kippur. Purim's a holier day? The answer is, yeah, Purim's a much, much holier day. If you want to know how, what Rafutner's thinking was, you could listen to that online. But my point now is, that's why the Purim Suda coincides with is eaten at the same time as what? Ne'ilah. Purim Suda is the Ne'ilah of Purim. Yeah, the Purim Chagiga, Purim night is wonderful. The Megillah at night in the morning is a mitzvah. And delivering Mishmach Manos and distributing the Matanos Levyonim, they're all Geshmak, they're wonderful. But you sit down to that Purim Seuda, and that's our Ne'ilah of Purim. What my daughter experienced walking around from Ne'ilah is what we should experience walking away, not stumbling away, but walking away from the Purim Seuda. Esham is Be'ach Tukad Bo. We should be on fire. We should be on fire. So if Yom Kippur requires preparation, the Kohen Gadol had to spend a week before he could have a Yom Kippur. And Yom Kippur only pales in comparison to Purim. It means you can't stumble into Purim. Now you can't stumble into Purim where all of a sudden you have no Mishlach Manos. So you feel like a fool. You keep answering the door. People are giving you and you have nothing to give them back. Obviously in a very practical way, Purim requires preparation. You have to be ready to reciprocate. You got to plan your suda. You got to cook. You have things that have to do. But often we get very consumed and distracted by the physical preparations for Purim. We fail to spiritually prepare. And just like you get out of Yom Kippur what you put into it, and Ne'ilah will have its lasting impact only based on how much you prepared for it, the same is true with Purim. You've got to prepare for Purim. You've got to get your head in the right Purim space. You've got to learn the right Torah that's going to inspire and elevate a person for Purim. Okay, we actually finished the overview. We're going to go back to look at the beginning of the parsha. Unbelievable. Look how we're growing. Okay. Let's go back to the very beginning. Tzav. Tzav. So we discussed this. The Korban Ola is entirely consumed. It sits on the fire the whole night. The bow, the fire has to be lit. Light that fire inside you. Zogdrashi. Tzav is Aaron. What does it mean? 
This is an unusual word, not sav. Usually you say emor, daber, we have other words. Here the word sav is used. Why is the word sav used here? It says Rashi, Lashem Ziruz, Miyad, Uladoros. Sav has three meanings. It means, Zars, means do it with alacrity, with zeal, with enthusiasm, with a fire lit in your belly. The way you run to the oil, you could eat shmorg. The, the, whatever excites you, whatever gets you going, whatever you run to, Zaruz. Miad, immediately, don't wait, don't delay, don't hesitate, don't procrastinate. Uladoros. And for generations to come, not just for now. So the word sav means those three things. means those three things. Rabbi Salavitchik says the Torah often uses variants of the word sav in discussing service specifically in the Mishkan. Viata titzaveh. Rashi in the Pasuk provides the following background. The word sav is meant to express urgency. The Rav is des- des- uh, describing or defining zeros as urgency. We define it as alacrity, zeal, run, enthusiasm, and fire. But the Rav is defining zeros as urgency for both the immediate moment and for future generations. The Torah must, and Rashi gives us the reason, this is what we're going to look at more closely in a moment, that the Torah has to express urgency in a situation where there's a loss of money. Many mitzvahs can involve monetary loss. Why is the word sav used specifically in the context of the sacrifices? You know what else costs a lot of money? An esrog. It doesn't say tzav when it says take the dalad minim. You know what else costs a lot of money? Jewish education. It doesn't say tzav when it talks about vishinantan levanecha. So why tzav here? There's a lot of parts. Every part of being an observant Jew costs a lot of money. Why here? The loss of money is intrinsic to certain mitzvahs, such as the mitzvah of giving charity. Thus the Pasuk says, Tzav is b'nei Yisrael, give to the Levium from the hereditary possessions, cities in which to dwell. The word Tzav is used when a loss of assets is intrinsic to the mitzvah. Offering a sacrifice similarly involves such a loss of assets. Rashi uses the term zeros in describing how the mitzvah is to be fulfilled, an, urgent, an urgency associated with mitzvahs that involve monetary loss. So the Rav says it's true, other mitzvahs cost money, but they don't have to. If you have an esrog tree in your backyard and you can grow an esrog, it doesn't have to cost you a lot of money. If you choose to homeschool your child, it doesn't have to cost you a lot of money. But then we have certain mitzvahs that intrinsically and by definition cost you money. What is the meaning of lidoros, wonders the Rav, in this context? The mitzvahs of mezuzah, tefillin, and Shabbos are clearly lidoros. Thousands of years have gone by and these mitzvahs are observed as they had been when they were originally given. But in what way are the mitzvahs of the Mishkan practiced today? There has been no korban tamid for almost 2,000 years. In what sense does the mitzvah of offering korbanos continue? How is it Lodoros, the mitzvah of korbanos? The Gemara Megillah and Dachlam recounts a conversation between Hashem and Avram in the context of the Brisbane of Sarim. Avram asked how he was to know that God would not forsake the Jewish people if they sinned. Hashem answered, in the merit of the korbanos. Avram insisted that this merit is fine when the korbanos are in existence, but what is to happen at the destruction of the of Mikdash? So Hashem replied that if the Bnei Yisrael learned the law surrounding the sacrifices, he would consider their study as virtual sacrificial offering. When we cannot offer sacrifices, we recite the halachas pertaining to them as a substitute. There is a mikdash in our days as well, not physically, but through halachic study. This is the Mesorah of Torah Shabbat Peh. We read Parsha Shkalim as if the Beis HaMikdash was still standing. It is Lodoros. Parsha's Parah reminds us to be ritually pure so we can bring the Korban Pesach. Although we no longer offer a Korban Pesach, we read Parsha's Parah as if the Beis HaMikdash still exists. So when we learn the Halachas of Karbonos, when we read these sections, when we recite Karbonos as part of our davening in the morning, then it is Lodoros. We are keeping this alive. It's not over, it's not anxious. When we long for a return of a Beis HaMikdash, it is not something which is over, but it's something which is part of our collective consciousness permanently and, and forever. So what is this word sav? Let's go back to the word sav. Sav. Zeros, miyad, uladoros. With alacrity, with zeal, 
immediately and for generations to come. Rashi notes the harsh and unusual, unusual language that the Kohanim had to be recruited. Other mitzvahs you could say, Dabir, tell them about this nice mitzvah and they're going to want to do it. In this it's tzav. It's harsh. Command. Demand. Tell them what they have to do because they're going to hesitate. They might be a little bit reluctant. Why would they be reluctant? Why do they need this firm encouragement? Why would they hesitate? What would be their hesitation? We find later, by the way, also, that they have a hesitation. If you open to Peraches Pasuk Beis, which is on page 580, the Pasuk says, Peraches Pasuk Beis, Take Aaron, his sons, and all the garments, the oil, the bowl, the rams, and the basket of matzos. Kach. That's a pretty harsh word too. Kach. I say to one of my children, take your little brother. Take your little sister. I don't know that Moshe should be told, Kach es Aaron. Take your older brother. Kach? Take? It's a little bit of a harsh word to describe a relationship between Moshe and Aaron. He's not grabbing him by the hand. He's not cradling him in his arms and putting him on his shoulders. What does kach mean? Says Rashi, Kachenu bedvarim umashcheyu. Use your words to take him and to drag him. Means, again, Aaron's hesitating. And Moshe has to appeal to him. Has to persuade him. Kach means not with a leash, not with your arm, don't hold him by the hand. Kach means, use your words. Persuade him with your words to come. So again, what was Aaron's hesitation? Aaron Vezbonov. Aaron and his sons had enough of a hesitation that Moshe had to be kach. He had to try to persuade him with his words. What was he reluctant? What were they reluctant about? Why did they need to be persuaded? And why did they need to be persuaded particularly about, about this mitzvah? So let's go back to Rashi. Rashi says at the beginning of the parsha. Amr of Shimon. You know why they need a little extra encouragement? Because mitzvahs that don't cost you any money, mitzvahs where you don't take a financial hit, when you don't have to lose, so you're happy to do them, you run to do them. But the mitzvahs that cost a lot, maybe you hesitate, maybe there's a pause. You need a little bit of encouragement in order to get going. What does this mean that there's a chesron kiss? What does it mean that there's a chesron kiss, that there's a loss of money? So there's a lot of different interpretations exactly what this means. Several different interpretations what this means. The Archaim HaKadosh says, Am Rizal B'Torah's Kohanim ain't Tzav HaLoshon Ziruz Mi'ad Al-Doros, quotes Rab Shimon, Hinei L'Tana Kami Yishkan Ziruz, Tzav Ma'ashagad L'Prati Dinei Ola Balayla, Ma'ashayim Ishbadom Ala Kolach Karbonos, L'Zeh Ziruz Umiyah Perish L'Oso Zman Yisnaheg. It's the night shift. The Ola's got to burn on the Mizbeach overnight. Someone's got to take the night shift. So it takes a little bit more encouragement to tell, ask somebody to take the overnight shift. And so on. What is the chesron kiss that Reb Shimon was talking about? Some say that it doesn't mean an actual financial loss. But what it means is, it's difficult. It means that you had to not do other work. You had to sacrifice another job. 
Right? You could have been, speak to every Mechanech rabbi. I could have been the best lawyer, the best doctor. I could have been making a killing. I'm underpaid, I'm underappreciated. I could have been making a lot more. So Kohanim felt the same way. Kohanim said, you know, if I wasn't serving in the base of Mekdash and getting a measly portion of what everyone else is eating, then I could have been out there the best farmer here. I would have had the best crop. I could have been wealthy. So the Chesron Kis is, according to the Rechaim HaKadosh, possibly the Chesron Kis is, could have had another job. Yeshom Chesron Kis will Yisrael. Some say the Chesron Kis is not a loss incurred by the Kohanim. It's a loss that's incurred by the rest of the Jewish people. Because the one who's bringing the Karban and other Karbanas gets at least to get some of the meat. You go home with some barbecue, some dinner. Here you have to bring a Karban Ole, you get nothing. So the Klal Yisrael, the Chesron Kis, is the owner, the one who's bringing the sacrifice. Orchayim then quotes, maybe it's the Kohen who's incurring the Chesron Kis. Not because he had to do the night shift, not because he gave up having another job, but because other Karbanos, he gets a piece of the Karban too. And this Karban, the Ola, is entirely consumed on the fire. The only thing he gets is a leather jacket, a new briefcase, a pair of shoes, a belt. He gets the leather, but that's all he gets, none of the meat. And the Orchayim says all four or five of those suggestions... I reject them all. They're rechokim be'inai. They're very uh, distant in my eyes. Will I near hasmadas eitzim shamru? Maybe it's not talking about the carbon. Maybe it's about the fuel, the fire, the the wood. Gimel marachah shleish hayusham. There were three fires. Shlishes ein aleklum el lekayim eish tamatukad. One of the fires actually never had anything on it. It just was in fulfillment of having a ner tamid, of having an eish tamid, of having the fire there all the time. So what's the chesron kiss? When you feel that you're paying for collecting, gathering, cutting down, schlepping trees to keep a fire going, and the fire is doing nothing. It's not being used for its warmth, it's not being used for its light, and it's not being used to barbecue or to consume the meat. So a person might feel, what a waste. What a chesron kiss. And then he gives a last interpretation. The carbon tamid, we make a very big deal out of the carbon tamid. Carbon tamid is very significant, it's very holy. So maybe the carbon tamid, which is not living to the koanim, but is offered on behalf of everybody. So the morning tamid is the key offering. No other offering of the whole day can be brought until the morning carbon is, is offered. And maybe that's the chesron kiss that they have to contribute to it. Or Chaim has a long discussion of what the chesron, of what the chesron kiss is. What does it mean it costs the Kohanim money? So I saw a very interesting insight or interpretation from a sefer called Shar Bas Rabim. It's the name of the sefer, Shar Bas Rabim. And he says the following, You know what happens when it costs you money? It's hard to concentrate. It's hard to feel good about what you're doing. When something costs you money, it also costs you peace of mind. Because if you rely on money, and we all do, money is our life source. Money sustains us. Money enables us to function. It protects us. It nourishes us. So a person who fears that if I'm spending... So again, if you have limited, unlimited money, so there's no chesed. What you're paying for this doesn't bother you. But if... You know, paying the shul dues or giving maiser or giving out matanas levyonim or buying uh, food for Pesach makes you worry about how you're going to pay your other bills and you're trying to uh, triage how you're going to pay your bills. So chesron kiss is chesron das. Right? What does it mean in kemach in Torah? So in kemach in Torah, normally we used to mean that if there's no one supporting Torah, there's no Torah. 
If there's no one to pay the bills for the kolol, the yeshiva, the base medrash, the seminary, the adult ed, then there's no one to keep the AC on, the lights on, pay the rebbeim, ain't kemach, ain't Torah. He's understanding it differently. Ain't kemach, ain't Torah means, ain't kemach. If you don't have food to eat, ain't Torah. You can't concentrate on learning Torah. Ain't chesron kiss? Yesh chesron kiss, yesh chesron das. Ain't kemach, ain't das. Ain't Torah. It says in the Yerushalma, Maisab Rabbi Yochanan, Sheibed Lo Arnako, Rabbi Yochanan lost his wallet. His, his students asked him, Rabbi Yochanan, we have a kasha, we have a shayla. They asked him a question and learning, he couldn't answer. They, they said to him, You lost your wallet, now you can't think? Rabbi, you're Rabbi Yochanan. Oh, you lost your wallet. Okay, so, you know, you'll call and cancel the credit cards, you'll have to figure out how much cash was in there, you have to renew your driver's license. It's annoying, it's a pain. So during Ben, ben uh, Starim, Right at lunch, you'll go home and you'll order new credit cards. But Rebbe, right now we're learning. You can't concentrate on learning because you lost your wallet? So, Omar Lehem, Rebbe Yochanan answered, Hadas belev taloi, valev ba'arnak taloi. The das depends on the heart, and the heart depends on the wallet. You see from the story, from this Yerushalmi, that when a person is worried about their financial stability and well-being, when they're worried about how they're going to pay the bills, when they're worried about the cost of something. I don't mean a stingy person who could afford it, but you know, every dollar drives them crazy. I mean a person who's genuinely concerned about how they'll pay their bills and how they'll take care of themselves, that that worry precludes and prevents a person from having das. You have no peace of mind. So the carbon ola, where they had to sacrifice everything. They didn't go home with any dinner. They didn't go home with any lunch. It also meant they didn't go home with any peace of mind. So that's what they needed. Sav, they hesitated because they would lack a peace of mind. They needed a little push. So this beautiful Sefer that was quoting this uh, insight says the same is true when it comes to our children. Very interesting insight. The Rambam writes in Hilchus Yontif that when we want to inspire our children to learn, we give them prizes. That when a person has a prize, when they feel that there's a reward associated with what they're doing, they do it with alacrity and zeal. They're more inclined to do it. When there's no reward associated with what they're doing, tzav, then the only thing you can get to get them going is to command, is to demand it of them. But if it's exciting for them because there's an internal payout, they believe there's a reward associated with what they're doing, they're going to be inclined to do it. So the Ramam describes that if you want to motivate children, we have avasubanim, vishinatam, we have raffles and prizes and candies, and if you want to motivate children, you give it out. So the Sefer learns from here that the best way to inspire is not to threaten, but is to reward. You can give negative consequences, or you can give positive. You can, you can condition negatively or positively. So the best way you see from here is to condition positively, not to, not to, condition, uh, not to condition negatively. That is, his, that is his insight. I also saw a couple other very interesting ideas. Rav Heschel of Kraka says, why do you need more zeros here? So he writes the following. Because it's tzav, that's why you need zeros. When you are internally motivated to do something, so your Yetzirah doesn't try to sabotage it. When someone tells you you have to do something, now the Yetzirah kicks in and tells you you don't. And that's why he quotes the Chazal, the Gemara in Kedushin, the Gemara says that a person who is commanded to do something gets more of a reward than the person not commanded. And we never understood that. What do you mean? The person volunteering is showing a greater initiative. So the one volunteering should get the greater reward. Why is it that the one who's commanded gets 
gets the greater reward. So he says, because the one who's volunteering doesn't have to combat a Yitzhahara. The one who's volunteering is so driven and so excited, they get the internal reward of doing something that they were inspired to volunteer to do. But the one who really doesn't want to do it and is just being commanded has to combat the Yitzhahara, and therefore the reward is greater. I remember a Rebbe as a child explaining it to us that if your parent's not home and you want to surprise them, so you're going to clean your room, or you're going to clean the kitchen, you're going to put away dinner, and they didn't ask you to, and they don't expect you to, but you're so excited to do it on your own and to volunteer to do it, that's one thing. But if they tell you you have to and you really don't want to, so who deserves the greater reward? True, the one who's volunteering is volunteering, but they get the reward by knowing that they volunteered and the positive feedback they'll get from having volunteered. The person doesn't want to do it, but has to fight through to do it anyway, they're the one who deserve the greater reward. So said Rav Heschel of, of Kraka, that's the pshat. Because it's sav, because it's sav, now it needs lashem zirus. Because it was commanded, now, now the Yitzhahara is going to rise, and now you have to, and now you have to find it, now you have to, you have to combat it. So coming back, what was the hesitation? Chesron kiss, because it would cost them money. Do we think so lowly of the Kohanim? Because it would cost them money, then they wouldn't want to be doing it. They wouldn't have an interest in doing it. And Kachas Aaron does Bonov. Moshe had to appeal, he had to persuade. Kachu Bidvarim. He had to use his words to try to drag Aaron and his sons to come and to do this. We find it also later in Parshas Korach, when the choice of the Kohanim was later contested in Parshas Korach. We find it, the Medrash suggests Aaron himself hesitated because of his humility. The Pasuk says, Kachas Aaron, Persuade him with words. Aaron's running away from leadership. He doesn't want a position of leadership. He doesn't want a title. Kach means not physically, it means to persuade with words. So Aaron was showing the proper attitude of running away from honor. Mishnah Rabbah says, person who chases honor, honor runs away from them. Person who runs away from honor, honor runs after them. So Aaron was showing the right was showing the right attitude. But what did Moshe say? What were his words? So what's the tzav? What was the hesitation that you needed tzav? And what was the hesitation that you needed kach? Go take and use words. So my friend Rabbi Kenny Shayowitz has a little Tvar uh, Torah pamphlet he wrote on Sefer Vayikra, and here in Parshas Tzav, this is his insight, and he suggests the answer we can find later in Parshas Bamidbar. We end with this. Later in Parshas Bamidbar, we find Kach again. Not between Moshe and Aaron. Now it's between Moshe and... Who's Moshe's successor? Yoshua. Take Yoshua and put your hands on him. And here again, Rashi says, take doesn't mean pick up Yoshua like his little child. Kach lecha means kachenu bidvarim. Take him with words. But here Rashi elaborates more. What were the words that Moshe told Yoshua in order to persuade him? Moshe told him, Wow, how lucky, how fortunate, how blessed you are to have the opportunity to lead the children of Hashem. The words that Moshe used were, Aaron, this is not a job. You're right, chesron kiss. If you're in it for the money, it's a chesron kiss. If you're in it for the money, you'll make more as a lawyer, a doctor, a businessman, a stockbroker. You can make a lot more money doing something else. But to have the privilege, ashrecha, if it's a calling, if it's what you see as your mission in life, then you're not worried about the chesron kiss. You're not worried about how much you're paid or what you've concurred as a financial loss. But says Moshe to Yehoshua, kach, what words did he use to persuade him? 
And Rabbi Shaiwitz is suggesting, these are also the words perhaps that he used to persuade his own brother Aaron. The words were, don't focus on the chesron kiss. Don't look at what you're giving up in Gashmis physically. Don't look at the sacrifice monetarily. Look at the privilege that you have to devote and to live your life as if it's a calling. That what you're doing in life is a calling. It's not just a job. If it's a job, you can be resentful you're not paid as much as other jobs. But if it's a calling, then you'll feel privileged and honor that what you're doing is a calling. Have a good Shabbos, a Freilich Purim, and a good Yor.